Amen. Thank you so much, Micah. It is an honor to be with you here today at Elkdale. And Brother Corey, if you're watching, we're praying for you and your family. We love you very much. And pastors all over this state, respect your leadership and what God is doing for you here at Elkdale. And church, we do love you. We're grateful for you. And I bring you greetings on behalf of the 180 churches and our family in the Birmingham Metro Baptist Association. Uh, it's, it's amazing what God is doing there, even amid all of this unusual experiences that we're having now because of the pandemic. Uh, across our association, 100,000 Baptists there uh, that worship in those churches, churches like Dawson Memorial, Shades Mountain Baptist, uh, the Church of Brook Hills, and so many churches you may not be aware of, like Greater St. John Baptist, uh, Trinity Baptist, South Roebuck Baptist Church, so many wonderful congregations there in the city, and most of them, their finances are doing okay. Uh, the people are uh, bearing up under these, you know, extenuating circumstances, and God is at work in our uh, family ministry. So we want to let you know we're praying with you as your brothers and sisters in Christ north. I don't normally come down this way uh, except when I'm going to Judson. My wife was a Judson girl, and she is a trustee at Judson College, and I, I affectionately call it no man's land because uh, I dated her when she was a student there, and I'm grateful for the Lord's work there. So it is truly an honor to be here. If you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And the title of the message this morning is uh, the, the Responsibilities of the Christ-Centered Church. The Responsibilities of the Christ-Centered Church. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8 this morning. And Paul writes to Timothy these words. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. May we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your inerrant word, this word that has been given to us, written over a period of 1,400 years, 40 different writers, but one author, your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes to what you would say to the church today amid the struggles and challenges that we're facing all across this nation and around the world. I pray that you would show yourself mighty and strong to your church, that you would express to us through our time in your word today, your lavish love and grace. And we are so thankful to be here alive and well, worshiping you today, God. 
So we give you this time. We give you our attention and our hearts and our listening ears. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I love this text because it reminds me of the importance of centering the church and all her ministries and the people and their lives around Jesus Christ. I'll never forget when I was in my late 20s and my wife and I were at home after a Wednesday night of serving in the ministries of our church and I got a phone call from this wonderful lady who said, I want to talk to you about becoming our pastor. And I was interested in what she had to say, but really was not interested in leaving the church. But it was, it was just amazing, her passion for her church. And she served on the pastor search committee. And after I hung up the phone, I immediately told my wife, I said, I don't think this is something for us, but we should pray about it because opportunities and doors, the Lord opens them and we need to make sure. And sure enough, God was leading us to become the pastor and pastor's wife of this church. And we began to talk to our mentors and the people who spoke into our lives. And they told us, I I don't think I would go there, Chris, because they'd asked their former pastor to resign. And the church's community has changed. And the church had been declining for over 20 years. We, We think this might not be a good move for you at this stage in your life in ministry. Maybe you want to go somewhere a little more healthy. But God would not let go of us. And we knew that this is where the Lord wanted us to go. And I'll never forget, after we, we, we went through a time of getting to know the congregation, we knew that we had some serious questions to answer about how we would move forward in the future. And we assembled a group of 21 key leaders who met every Sunday night to pray and ask about our future. And as we began to pray, one night, a gentleman named Gene, who was 80 years old, he stepped outside the room and He came back in, and when he came back in, he listened for a moment, and then he stood, and he spoke up, and he said, something is different in this room. As we had been praying about our future, as we've been looking toward what God would do through our church, he said, something is different. And after that meeting, he came to my office, and he said, Chris, it was as if in that moment in time, the church stopped worrying about its purpose and worrying about what they wanted and worried about its future and started thinking about what Jesus wanted for the church. And I thought this is truly a transformative time. And sure enough, it was after that moment, really, it was a catalytic moment. We saw our church transition to be a Christ-centered church, to look to the Great Commission that's found in Matthew 28 and center our ministries around that. And really, the church began to move in an amazing direction, and disciples were made, and lives were transformed, and families raised up, and we, we planted other ministries. At three, three church plants evolved out of that, and God did something great. And I, I, I long to see all churches center around Jesus and what he wants for the church and not our own preferences. It's like my mentor spiritually, he's spoken in my life on many occasions, but I remember he said one time, never forget who you are, where you came from, and why you're here. And I, I look at Paul's words to Timothy in Second Timothy, obviously he must have had the same philosophy. He reminded Timothy in chapter 1, where he came from, he said in verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, this is in chapter 1, that dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now 
I'm sure, dwells in you. He reminded him of that. He also reminded him of who he was. If you look in chapter 2 in the verses leading up to our text this morning, he reminded him that he is to be like a teacher teaching the truth. He is to be like a good soldier who is willing to to sacrifice and to fight for the faith. He also reminded him he's like an athlete who competes according to the rules. He is like a farmer who works hard to get out and to make sure the crops are tended to. And now he's telling him that he needs to center his ministry around Jesus Christ. And so today I want to give us these four responsibilities of the Christ-centered church. And I'll start in verse 8. And the first one is this. It's simply we need to remember who Jesus is. That's the first responsibility of a Christ-centered church and a Christ-centered Christian. Remember Jesus Christ in verse 8. He is deity. He says he's risen from the dead. So we remember who Christ is. And here we see in just simple language encapsulated in these words here, risen from the dead, the gospel, that Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The implication here is he did die on the cross for our sin and he is risen from the dead. And we might note that every truth about Christ as it relates to his deity is guaranteed by his resurrection, that Christ is the risen Lord. And that certainly certifies to us that he is of great power, omnipotent power. He is the Christ of eternality. He is the Christ who will be coming again, and he is certainly the Christ who has power over death itself. And so we remember Christ. He is deity. He also goes on to say he is the offspring of David. So he is Christ who is the Christ of humanity. We know that Jesus Christ is that perfect, sympathetic high priest who knows our every weakness. And so I'm grateful that we have a Christ who has walked in this uh, earthly side that we walk on. He knows what we face. He understands temptation. And he is perfect in humanity so that when he went to the cross, as it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, he provided that shed blood, which was the remission for our sin. And so he is the Christ of humanity. But as he goes on, he's... He says that Christ is that Christ who is worth suffering for. He says in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And so Paul had suffered so much. If you just remember his story, this great Pharisee of Pharisees who studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who was so you know, emboldened by the truths of the Torah law that he felt when this movement came along who called themselves the way, followers of Christ, that he had to stamp them out and stop them in their tracks. And Paul was so bold about that. He even stood with the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. He stood with their cloaks at his very feet. And then he was on his journey to Damascus, Syria, to stop this Christian movement. And Christ met him on the way to the road to, this, to Damascus. And Christ changed his life forever. And he became this valiant warrior for the faith in Christ. Going on three missionary journeys and then in Acts 21, he was at the Temple Mount. He was arrested. Eventually, he was taken to Caesarea Maritima on the coast of the Mediterranean where he was forgotten for two years until he stood before Festus and uh, Agrippa and Bernice and he gave his good testimony for Jesus Christ and he asked for what was due him as a Roman citizen. He wanted to stand before Nero and give 
give testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that very thing he would do. And he, at this moment in time, writing his last will and testament to Timothy, he said, I have suffered for these things. I have suffered to communicate about this Christ who died for my sin, who transformed my life. But he also says, remember who Christ is, who is the unbound word. He says that I'm bound in change, but praise be to God, the word of God is not bound. And as we live now in this time of coronavirus, in this pandemic that is gripping our world, we know that the word of God is going forth today, going forth from Southern Baptist pulpits, 49,000 churches across our convention, plus other brothers who are preaching the word of God. And then around the world through missionaries, not only from the North American Mission Board and the IMB, but through many other untold Baptists and other leaders who are preaching the gospel today, this un bound word that no one can stop. I love what Job shared as he talked to the Lord in Job 42 verse 2. As Job came to his senses, he said, I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours may be thwarted. Our God, church, is able. Our God is able. So we remember, first of all, who Jesus is. Number two, Second reminder to the Christ-centered church is that we remind the church that we serve Jesus, that we serve Jesus. We don't simply know who he is and embrace him as Savior, but he is our Lord and we serve him as master. So look down in verse 14 of the text in 2 Timothy 2. Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things. Well, what things? What things? Well, we look up in the text and we see beginning in verse 11, at least some of what he is calling on Timothy to remind the church of. He gives these four if statements that are in your Bible there. And many scholars and other sources say that this is an ancient hymn, perhaps a hymn that was even delivered when someone would be a candidate to be baptized in the ancient church. This would have been a hymn that would have been sung. And I want you to notice something about the two uh, first verses of this hymn that begin with the word if. Both of them share with us that the Christian life is a life that involves suffering. Notice that. This ancient hymn that may have been sung at the baptisms of these ancient Christians, it shares with all who will read it and sing it and share it that Christianity isn't a rosy path. That Christianity isn't a calling to just uh, a life of ease. But Christianity and following our Savior and Lord is often a call to suffer. And he says here in this ancient hymn, beginning in that first if statement, if we have died we, uh, with him, we also live with him. Notice that. Uh, this here indicates that believers are united with Christ in his death. And this is, uh, this is reminiscent of what Paul wrote in his magnum opus in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. He says there in the text, We were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And in most Baptist pulpits today, a summary of that verse is delivered when each candidate is baptized. You ever notice that? 
buried in the likeness of his death, and raised to walk in the newness of life. And so you and I, church, we are related to Christ and identified with Christ in his death. And if we die with him, we also live with him. And I'm thankful that that day when I was sitting on this side of the sanctuary at the West Side Baptist Church in my hometown of Jasper, Alabama, my parents did not go to church, but I had this faithful uncle who was devoted to Christ, a World War II veteran who was saved when he was 45 years old and lived his best life from that point forward, brought me to church that day. And the pastor stood at the pulpit and unashamedly preached Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Tears rolling down my face. I sensed the work of the Spirit in my heart and the most shy and bashful child you had ever met walked down that aisle, stepped to the pastor and said, I need to be saved. And the Lord transformed my life. And from that moment forward, not perfectly, but from that moment forward, I began to live. I began to live. And you're watching this today by streaming. You're here this morning. If you have not yet to begin to live in Christ, answer the Spirit's call today. He goes on that next important phrase. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure. The Christian life is a life of testing. And our endurance is being tested. And if we endure, the faithful will be rewarded for that endurance. I love what the Lord Jesus shared with the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, verse 21. He says, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. What a powerful word that is. To, to, to share this word of promise to the worst church of all seven in Revelation that those who conquer will sit with me and will be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. What a beautiful thought that is. In this place where there is no more crying, no more toil, uh, no more pain, and no more seed. A place where there's perfect peace. If we go on in this great hymn of faith, he says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. And I'm reminded of our words, of the words of our Lord, rather, in Matthew chapter 7, that not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but those who live for him and do not deny him. And then finally, he says, if we are faithless, I love this, because it's a great follow-up to that third verse, this fourth and final verse, if we are faithless, he, the Lord Jesus, remains faithful. I'm so glad that our Lord Jesus Christ is trustworthy. That he loves us. And even when we falter and stumble and fail, the Lord is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny his nature. He is faithful God. He is God in the second person of the triunity. He is Jesus Christ, the faithful one. For he cannot deny himself. One of my favorite texts is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast. That confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Every promise in this beautiful book is faithful. It's, it's sure. Also, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Another one of my favorite texts is this. The one who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So the Lord is faithful. So... 
Today, church, we, we need to understand that as the Christ-centered church, we have those responsibilities to first remember who Jesus is, verse 8, to remind the church that we serve him, verses 11 through 14, and then third, to charge the church to unify around Jesus, to charge the church to unify around Jesus. If you look at the second part of verse 14 with me, you'll see that. If you look there, beginning with the word charge in the ESV, it says charge them. Paul is sharing with Timothy this word here for the Ephesian church, probably. Charge them before God. Isn't that interesting how a pastor is supposed to represent and share the word of God with the flock? He's not giving a TED talk. He's not just sharing his thoughts or opinions. He is speaking before the people in the presence of Almighty God. Charge them not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. I want to speak on that for just a moment because this third responsibility is very important that we charge the church to unify around Jesus. As a director of missions, as an associational missionary, sometimes I get these calls from people in their churches that want to tattle on their pastor. They want to create dissension in their church and they think that I am the Baptist Pope for our area. And so they call our office, the Vatican, and they, they think they're going to, to get something done and they're going to pull strings. And they don't understand Baptist ecclesiology, our, the, our view of the church. We as Baptists believe in the autonomous local church and that there is no higher office. It's not in Nashville that's the headquarters of the Baptist church. The headquarters of the Baptist church should be in glory, but also in the pews of the church that we believe that the local church uh, has the, the say-so in responding to the Lord's headship in that local body. And so it's interesting the, the, the calls and the discussions I have, and I want to be frank with you, many of those relate to the preferences of the church members. I don't like what the preacher wears. I don't like what the preacher says. I don't like our, the worship music. I don't like the way we've changed my Sunday school class. They made us move down the hall. We, we get all kinds of interesting contacts and calls at the local Baptist Association about certain local congregations. And it makes me pray more diligently for the pastor because I know that it is impossible to, it's an impossible task in the flesh to pastor a local church. Truly it is. It is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day endeavor. It, it, it is almost impossible to do it. And, and think about the poor pastor's wife. Now, I remember when I was called to my first church at the age of 18, and yes, they may have been foolish for calling such a young man to pastor the church, but I remember sitting there with that pastor search committee. We're sitting around a, an old fold-out table, just like you have in your fellowship hall, and the metal chairs, and we're sitting there. We're talking about the responsibilities of the church. And then they zero in on my wife like she had a bullseye on her and begins to ask her all these very personal questions. And then they had the audacity to ask her if she knew how to play a Hammond organ. And, and of course, my wife, she, she's so gracious and so loving. She says, no, no, no. If I, played, if I played the piano, the organ in the church, it'd be the quickest way to empty everyone out. And, and, and well, can you lead the choir? Well, no, sir. I've never really been a leader in music. I'm glad to participate. I played the saxophone in high school. And it, it, it just on and on. 
It's as if they have this, this perfect mold of a pastor's wife that somehow was formed in their mind that goes back to probably some wonderful pastor's wife in the 1930s or 40s. And they, if we don't get back to that, we're not going to reach uh, where we need to be in our pastoral leadership and his wife in our church. You know, you would not believe the petty things that people get into in local church. Maybe you would. But I want to tell you the word of God here is clear to us that we don't get into quarrels and dissensions about words and our preferences. And he's speaking out here against those false teachers. And that could get even more technical. But I want to draw your attention to Titus chapter 3 verse 9. A great reference that you can uh, draw to this text here in 2 Timothy And he he says, Paul says to Titus in chapter 3, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies. Boy, that's a general statement. Just avoid it. If it's not about the gospel, if it's not of doctrinal significance, if it's not so essential that uh, it, it relates to the things of God, then avoid it. Avoid it. Avoid genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul goes on to say to Timothy that he should correct those who have these issues with gentleness that God may grant repentance. So it's, we can't just go in and bulldoze over people, say you're talking about foolishness and and just run them in the dirt, we have to be gentle with them and pray that the Lord will take these baby Christians who seem to be caught up on their own selfish wants, and we have to direct them toward Jesus and pray that the Lord will grant them that gift of repentance. So important. I want to draw your attention to one word in verse 14 that I found startling. Startling. It's this word, which does no good, but only ruins, ruins, notice that word, the hearers. This destructive talk that Paul is helping Timothy to navigate in the church, he says this kind of talk ruins the hearers, the people in the church, ruins. Did you know that word is only used in one other place in the New Testament? And it's in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, when there Peter is talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you want to rain fire and brimstone down on your church in a spiritual sense, then allow destructive gossip and rumors and talk to go on in your church instead of Christ-centered talk. So we have to be very careful about that. The only other place that word ruin is used is in discussion of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because when we allow controversies to displace talk about the truth and Certainly controversies and rumors and talk displaces the truth of God. We don't want that to ever happen in our church. So transitioning to that final responsibility, don't argue over words, but be faithful to God's word. So the fourth responsibility of a Christ-centered church is to present ourselves as unashamed workmen. Unashamed workmen. So... We will have to give an account for our work. We will have someone come and inspect our labor. And that great master will come, the Lord, and inspect what we've done. And so what do we do? Verse 15, look there again. Do your best. This is what we do, our best. We give our all. We do what we do with excellence. 
to present ourselves to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That word handling is also translated in the King James as dividing. And the word gives us it's orthomunta in the original Greek. It's a word that means cut it straight. So we take the word, we understand it, we analyze it, we, we, we look at it in detail, and we cut it straight. We make sure it fits in our lives in the way that God intended. We don't, we don't divide it or cut it in a way that, that lends to our own personal wants or our own needs. We don't overemphasize things or underemphasize things. We don't inject our own thoughts or our own feelings or what other people say, but we cut it straight. What does God say to the church? What is God speaking into my life? And so with skill and accuracy and and, and great analytical precision, we look at the Word of God and we faithfully teach it, we faithfully believe it, and we faithfully live it like a workman, a workman. He uses that phrase here that we are workmen. Uh, we are skilled craftsmen who work and toil and we labor to the point of exhaustion. That's what we do. You know, I, I know that pastors have a lot of responsibilities in the church. I kind of break them down into three categories. The pastor is to lead the flock. The pastor is to feed the flock with the word of God. And the pastor is to care for the flock. And that's so important. And some pastors are really skilled at one of the three. Very few are skilled across the spectrum. And that's because we're human beings. If you had the perfect pastor, you'd have Jesus here in the flesh. But He's there to lead the flock and to care for the flock. But I would venture to say that perhaps the most important is that feeding element. Because if you get that wrong, you've really messed up in the other two. If you don't understand the word of God and how to communicate that and the importance of it and what God is saying uh, in his word, then you're going to not do well at uh, caring for the flock because you're going to overemphasize or underemphasize. You're going to inject your own feelings or thoughts. You're not going to do well at that. You're not going to lead the flock well. You might lead them astray. But I'm thankful that God does provide the leadership for his church that it needs. When the church faithfully seeks him and prays, God does that. He did that for Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. Wonderful word there. A promise from the Lord to Israel. He said, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. What a precious word that is. That God is there. And I know that pastor search teams they often get in a hurry. We got to find us a pastor, a preacher. And we need him now. I, I've heard that discussion on many occasions as you uh, visit with those search teams uh, across the association. And a lot of them are, are driven by the fact that there's a lot of things that go undone when there is no pastor in the church. But here's what I often tell them. There's something worse than not having a pastor. And that's having the wrong pastor. So you need to pray for the Lord to lead you to one of these shepherds that Jeremiah speaks of here. Someone who has that spirit, who is after the heart of God. And I'm thankful that you have that here at Elkdale. So we have four responsibilities in the Christ-centered church. 
Our responsibility is to remember who Jesus is, to remind the church that we serve Jesus, to charge the church to unify around Jesus, and then number four, to present ourselves as unashamed workmen. Just uh, last week, I had the privilege of sitting with one of our African-American pastors. Uh, Birmingham Association has one-third of our churches are predominantly African-American, and I just have the joy and the honor of sitting with some great spiritual leaders, particularly this man, Pastor Ollie, who lived through the civil rights movement, a great man of faith who loves Jesus and has no animosity or bitterness in his heart, but a true love for all people. And I said, Pastor Ollie, you've been at this a long time. You've seen a lot of change in your days. I said, what would you share as a word of encouragement or advice to young pastors and churches in our association? Pastor Ollie, he looked up from his plate and he said, you know what I would say? I would say that the first thing they need to do is to preach the gospel. I hear a lot of preaching and I see a lot of things going on in the church world And it's not centered around the discipling of new believers. And I believe that we need to preach the gospel. And he said, you know what else I would tell them? He said, I would tell them to believe what they preach. He said, I see so many pastors of all ages and churches that say they believe Jesus died for their sins. and There's no other way to heaven and believe that hell is real, but they don't really live like it. They're not out there sharing their faith. They're not out there living their faith in their community. I would tell them that they not only need to preach the gospel, but they need to believe it. And he said, finally, I would tell them they need to love people. There's far too much hate, animosity, and, and dissension in the world in which we live. And that's even in the church today. It, it's not just political, but it is political. It's, just, it, it, it's the gamut. And I would tell them that they need to love people. I'll tell you, Elkdale Baptist family, I think that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> If we want to see God move, if we want to be obedient and be Christ-centered, if we could just preach the gospel, if we could just simply believe it, and if we could love the people around us, we would be so much better off. I'm thankful that we do have a gospel that leads us to a Christ who saves. And if you're here today and you don't know that Christ or you're not following him as you should, Christ isn't the center of your life. You're all in all. If he isn't the essence of who you want to be, his life, his ministry, then I encourage you to turn to Jesus today. May we pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful here at Elkdale this morning that we are lifting up your son, Jesus, that we're honoring him in our worship and adoration today. We're thankful that you've given us the breath to breathe, the life to live, the opportunity to come as your people. And I ask God that we would continually evaluate our lives. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and see if there's any way of wickedness. And Lord, if Christ isn't the center of every aspect of our lives, Lord, would you reveal it to us? Lord, that we might by your grace, turn and repent and be more like your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here or watching that has yet to meet Jesus today. 
they do not know him as Savior and as Lord. And Lord, we know that we will all stand before you, that before you every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And Lord, I pray that all who are in my hearing will do that from a sense of being your friend, being redeemed, having been forgiven. Lord, for anyone who has not yet, that they would answer the call of the gospel and the drawing of the Spirit today. We love you, we praise you, and we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.